If you would, please, would you turn in your Bibles once again to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah is a crucially important chapter of Scripture. I say that because in it, Isaiah gives a number of remarkable prophecies about the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 53, we are told that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. We are told that the punishment upon him would bring us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And in this same chapter, Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The fulfillment of this prophecy is abundantly clear in the passage we will consider today. As Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, we will see the deep compassion of Jesus as he shares our sorrows and grief. We will see this very clearly as Jesus continues to minister to the sisters Martha and Mary as they grieve the loss of their brother Lazarus. And Jesus not only grieves for them, he grieves with them. In the passage we will consider today, we will hear those important and revealing words, Jesus wept. If we can back up for a moment and review what brought us to today's passage, we will recall that when Jesus was on the far side of the Jordan, a messenger delivered an urgent message that came from the village of Bethany. Two sisters, Martha and Mary, said to Jesus through the messenger, he whom you love is sick. Jesus declared to the 12 that the final result of this sickness would not be death, but the glory of God. Jesus then announced they would be going back into Judea. This caused a rigorous, a vigorous objection from the disciples. Peter, could you bring the volume down just slightly? They said it was too dangerous and reminded Jesus that in their last visit into Jerusalem, that the the religious leaders and the crowds wanted to stone Jesus. And so they said, it is too dangerous for you to go. But Jesus explained he had to go, he must go, and this was so for two reasons. First, for the glory of God. And second, for those who would see God glorified through the miracle that Jesus knew he was about to perform, some would come to believe in him. Last week, we saw Jesus arrive on the outskirts of Bethany. And at John 11, verse 17, we were given some important background information as John set the scene. 
Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And so as Jesus arrives at the outskirts of Bethany, the primary focus of this visit is on the two sisters. And as the two sisters enter the story, we are likely meant to notice a contrast between them. As we might expect, Martha and Mary deal with their brother's death differently. They are different people with different personalities. And not only will they deal with their brother's death differently, they deal with Jesus differently. Last week, the spotlight was on Martha. And if we are familiar with Martha from the three synoptic gospels, we are already familiar with some of Martha's personal characteristics, her behavioral characteristics. As an example, we recalled an account from Luke's gospel where Martha and her sister Mary were featured. On this earlier occasion, Jesus was in the town of Bethany, and he was the guest of honor in a house that was owned by a man named Simon. But even though this was not Martha's house, she took charge of the logistics of this gathering. Consequently, we saw her running around the house, taking care of all the responsibilities, while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened. And what is most striking about Luke's story is that Martha does not rebuke her sister. Martha rebuked Jesus. According to Luke, she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Therefore, tell her to help me. Clearly, Martha is not only a take-charge kind of person, she is also someone who will not hesitate to speak her mind. And so we were not surprised when in this current situation, Mary, I mean Martha, rebuked Jesus in regard to her brother's death. If we look at verse 20, we read this. Now, Martha... As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's placing the blame on Jesus. She's making him responsible. If Jesus had been there, if he had healed Lazarus of his sickness, this would not have happened, and Lazarus would not have died. This may surprise us, that Martha would talk to Jesus in this way, even as she calls him Lord. But we do need to remember that she is under deep emotional distress. And it appears, therefore, she's taking her sorrow, her grief, out on Jesus. 
But let's not miss the fact that Jesus did not rebuke Martha in return. Instead, he gave her words of comfort. At 23, Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. Because we are familiar with this story, we know that Jesus means that her brother will rise again on this very day. But Martha doesn't know that. And she doesn't expect that. She assumes that Jesus is speaking about something that will occur in the distant future. Look please at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. When? At the last day. She's speaking about the resurrection that will occur at the end of human history. At the last day. She has no expectation that her brother will rise on this day. In verse 25, Jesus made a vitally important proclamation. And it is the foundation of this entire chapter. Jesus said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And because of this, all who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus then asked Martha and us the most important question we can possibly be asked in this life. She asks, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do we believe that there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved? Martha responded by giving a remarkably profound confession of faith. She said, yes. Look at verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She does believe. And we concluded last week, if she believes Jesus now, even in her pain, even in her grief, how much more will she believe when she sees her brother dead for four days, walk from the grave. After Mary gives her profound confession, the spotlight now turns to Mary. After Martha gave her confession, the spotlight now turns to Mary. Let's go, please, to John 11, verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way, and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Martha leaves Jesus on the outskirts of the village and runs back to her house. She goes to secretly call her sister. The NIV has called her sister aside. Martha wants to have a private conversation with Mary, apart from the visiting mourners. Why is that? Perhaps it is the case that Martha, aware that Jesus is a wanted man, and the religious authorities want to kill him, is attempting to keep the arrival of Jesus a secret. And we may further ask, 
Why is Jesus still on the edge of town? Why, he had, why has he not come into town? Is it to avoid bringing attention to himself? Well, that can't be the case. Because if he didn't want to be noticed, he certainly would not have come to do the thing we know he will do, and he knows he will do, raise Lazarus from the dead. That's going to attract a lot of attention. Wouldn't you agree? We aren't told why Jesus remains on the outskirts of town, but it may be as simple as his wanting to remain as close as possible to his next destination, the tomb of Lazarus. As Martha whispers to Mary, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Let's notice an important detail. Martha refers to Jesus as the teacher. The commentator Leon Morris suggests it is important to notice this term is used by a woman, the teacher. In first century Israel, rabbis did not take on female disciples. They only took on men as disciples, but not so for Jesus. He taught both men and women, and all who followed him were known as his disciples. And so as Martha says to Mary, the teacher is calling for you, we can conclude that Mary is to be counted among the disciples of Jesus. And Jesus has planned for his disciples, including Martha and Mary, an important lesson that will allow them to see the glory of God. After Martha quietly delivers this message into her sister's ear, verse 26 says that as soon as she heard that, she, Mary, arose quickly and came to him. The Greek text gives the impression that Martha didn't even finish her sentence before Mary was already on her feet and heading out the door. Let's go, please, to verse 31 as we see that Martha's attempt at secrecy was not successful. Look at 31. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Mary's hasty departure attracts the attention of the visiting mourners, which is not surprising because we are told the reason these mourners are there are to comfort her. And so as she suddenly gets up and runs out of the house, that's a development they could not miss. And as she leaves the house, they quickly follow her. And as they do, they make a mistaken assumption about why she left. They say to one another, she's going to the tomb to weep there. That tells us what they were doing in the house before the mass departure. Mary was sitting in the house weeping as the visiting mourners comfort her by weeping with her. It's important that we notice the word weep that appears here. 
That is an unfortunate translation. Because in our English understanding, when we are told that someone is weeping, aren't we likely to picture somebody who's crying quietly? They're, they're weeping. But the Greek word that is here indicates that's not what is occurring. The Greek word here describes a loud wailing. This loud wailing would be accompanied by mourners beating their chests and even rending their garments. These customs may seem strange to us when compared to our Western funeral practices, but these customs are continuing, are co continue to be practiced today in many Middle Eastern cultures. According to first century Jewish custom, even the poorest family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. The flute players would play a depressing tune. And we will suppose that the professional wailing woman would lead the others as they express their mis misery. She was like a conductor. She would conduct the wailing, the, the loud crying and screaming as people grieved for their law, the, law, the one who was lost. These seven days of mourning, sitting Shiva, was a dramatic affair. It was meant to express the corporate sorrow of the community. And so this was not a quiet weeping. It was a loud and raucous wailing. The visiting mourners assume that Mary is overcome with grief and wanting that they assume that she wants to be close to her deceased brother and that she's gone to the tomb to continue her crying and her wailing there. Therefore, they go with her. But we know what the crowd of mourners does not. Mary and Martha are not going to the tomb, at least not yet. They are going to the outskirts of the village to meet with Jesus. And as Mary goes, let's notice the effect that this development will have as the story continues to unfold. As this crowd follows Mary, when Jesus goes to the tomb to perform this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, he's going to have a big crowd of witnesses. Let's go, please, to verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says exactly the same thing that Martha said a few minutes ago. It would appear that during these past four days, since the death of Lazarus, these sisters have had an opportunity to compare notes, to discuss their feelings with one another, and they both know that Jesus has the miraculous power to heal. And had he been in Bethany while their brother was sick, he could have prevented this tragedy. Again, there's no indication, however, that either sister expects Jesus to raise their brother from the dead. Earlier, Martha showed she had no expectation of her brother being 
raised from the dead until the end of human history, at the last day. And in an upcoming verse, Jesus will call for the stone to be removed from the tomb. And Martha will object to this. And the reason is, she says, my brother's been dead for four days. He's decaying and starting to smell. And so she objects to moving the stone. She has no expectation that he's going to be raised. And it would seem that Mary shares this line of thinking, as evidenced by the fact that she too rebukes Jesus for not being there to prevent her brother from dying. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. Now, if we can, for just a moment, set aside the fact she's speaking to Jesus. She's rebuking the creator of heaven and earth. Let's bear in mind that Mary, like her sister, is trying to cope with the grief of losing her brother to that enemy called death. Death is Shocking. Even when you know it's coming, it is shocking when it happens. And when it comes calling for a loved one, this death causes a cascade of complex emotions. Medical professionals today have identified five stages of grief. First comes denial. As those who are grieving cry out, this really can't be happening. Then comes anger. Then bargaining. Next, depression. And finally, acceptance. But let's go back to the second stage, anger. Those who are facing loss will often express their anger by attempting to find someone to blame. We might blame the person who died. If only they hadn't done this or that, they would not have died. We might blame the doctors. We might blame ourselves. We might blame all of the above. Anger wants to find out who is responsible and lay the blame on that person who we believe is responsible. Isn't that what's happening with Martha and Mary? If you had been here, my brother would not be dead. They're angry, and they want to place the blame on Jesus. But even as Mary rebukes Jesus for not being there to heal Lazarus, we should not miss where and how she expresses her sorrow and her grief and perhaps even her anger while she's on her knees. We did not see this from Martha, but we do from Mary. Look again at 32. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down on her knees. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They are dealing with their brother's death differently, and they are dealing with Jesus differently. Let's go, please, to 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who, were, who came with her, they were also weeping. She groaned, uh, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Mary is at Jesus' feet 
and she's weeping. Now, once again, let's remember when we see that word weeping it, for these um, mourners, for the sisters and for the mourners, they're not weeping, you know, they're not crying quietly, they're wailing out loud. Mary is wailing. She's suffering at the loss of her brother. And there can be no doubt in our minds that the tears of Mary are genuine. But we can't be so sure about the crowd that has come with her. Some of these mourners may be genuine in their grief, but then again, let's bear in mind that at least one of these people is a professional mourner. And it may be the case that there are others who have followed the crowd and who are wailing, not because they feel grief in their hearts, but merely because they're going through the motions because this is a custom that's expected of them. They're, they're acting out as they wail. Well, whatever the reason, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people, and they're crying out loud. They are wailing. They're shrieking. And now we're given a glimpse into the heart of Christ. We see the emotional side of the incarnate God. John reports at verse 33, he, Jesus, groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The NIV renders the verse as he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The terms that are used here, groaned or moved and troubled, they have caused considerable debate among scholars. And the reason for this debate, I would think in part, is because these words describe an emotional state. Emotions are complex, and they are hard enough and difficult enough to describe in people. When we are trying to understand the heart of God and understand what kind of emotions the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, is experiencing, that can be even more difficult. And as we examine this description of Jesus' heart and the emotions that he's feeling, we will follow the lead of one commentator who suggests that we ask two questions. First, how did Jesus respond to this scene? And second, why did he respond in this way? As we ask the first question, how did he respond Let's begin with the initial descriptive phrase, he groaned in the spirit, or as the NIV has it, he was deeply moved in spirit. First, a preliminary qualification. When we see the word spirit here, this is not referring to the Holy Spirit. The word is meant to say that Jesus is experiencing something in his innermost being. He groaned in his innermost being. Let's consider now the word that is variously translated for us as groaned or moved. And there are other alternatives depending on which English translation we're using. According to John MacArthur, the common translations we find in our Bibles are misleading. The Greek word that appears here for, and it's translated for us as groaned or moved or some other word, is imbrimomai, imbrimomai. 
And this word has a strange and surprising meaning. Listen, it literally means to snort like a horse, to snort like a horse. This word was originally used to describe a snorting horse, but it changed over time so that it was eventually used to describe a person who was angry. Therefore, contrary to the vague translation offered by most English Bibles with words like groaned or moved, many Greek scholars suggest that angry might be the best translation. And if we entertain that as our working translation, as Mary is on her knees wailing, and the visitors who are surrounding them are also wailing, crying out, Jesus is angry. Which begs the question, if it is the case that Jesus is angry, with whom is he angry? Some have suggested he's angry with those crying mourners who, like stage actors, are merely playing a part, and they're not really grieving in their hearts. They're pretending to grieve. Some suggest his anger was directed toward Mary and Martha, not because they rebuked him, but because they lacked the vision and the faith that he could restore their brother to life. While these two explanations are possible, I believe that the best explanation is the long-held view that Jesus is angry at death itself. And of course, the curse of sin that causes anger. As we well know, the wages of sin is death. And therefore, we have this image of Jesus like a war horse snorting on the field of battle. He is angry at those enemies called death and sin. And it is these two enemies that Jesus will battle when he goes to the cross. And praise God, he's won the victory. Earlier, we considered the possibility that Martha and Mary, at this point in the grieving process, are at that stage called anger. They were looking for someone to blame for the emotional pain they're feeling. And they blamed Jesus as they pointed out he could have prevented it. But Jesus knows where to place the blame. The blame falls on those dual enemies of sin and death. The brilliant theologian B.B. Warfield writes this. This is good. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And whom he, Jesus, has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fall from his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. And allow me to say it again. Christ has won the victory in this battle against sin, death, and the devil. Amen? Amen. In the first question, we asked, how did Jesus respond? Our working conclusion up to this point is that he is angry. 
He's angry at sin and the wages of sin that leads to death. And so let's ask the second question, which is why? Why does he respond in this way? To help us with that question, let's consider the second word that is described, that describes what Jesus is experiencing in his spirit. And that is, he is troubled. He's troubled. Our English word troubled translates the Greek word terasso, terasso. And like the first term, this word terasso also indicates an intense emotional state. There are several examples of this word terasso or troubled in the New Testament. For example, you'll recognize them. It is used by the apostle Matthew when he calls the reaction, he recalls the reaction of the 12 when they see Jesus walking on the water. Matthew chapter 14 says this, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying it is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. Here's another example of the word used by Luke as he describes the father of John the Baptist when he's visited by an angel. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, the angel, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And so in these two examples, this emotional state of feeling troubled is accompanied by fear. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But I see no reason why Jesus would be fearful in this situation. In fact, I can't think of any situation in which Jesus, the all-powerful Lord of heaven and earth, would fear anything. And so I submit Jesus is not troubled. He's not fearful for himself. He fears for those who will face death without him. He fears for those who will not believe and therefore will die in their sin. He fears for those who will face an eternity of grief in that place where there is weeping. And that word weeping means wailing. Where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. And in his spirit, deep in his spirit, Jesus is troubled. But here's the good news. That is precisely why Jesus came, to show us the way to eternal life. And what is that way? It is to believe in him who alone can declare, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will never die, Jesus said. At verse 34, Jesus says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. We are not told who the word they refers to, as in they said to him, Lord, come and see. But we will surmise it's the two sisters who bid Jesus come to the tomb that you will Grieve with us there. And as they begin to walk, we're given another look into the heart of Christ. Look at verse 35, please. Jesus wept. 
if you attended Sunday school, you likely know that we are looking at the shortest verse in the Bible. Just two words. Jesus wept. And never have so few words said so much. As we look at this verse, it will be important that we notice the word wept once again. The word that the Apostle John uses here is different than the word he used to describe the wailing women and the visiting mourners. In that sense, the word there speaks about wailing. Here, Jesus is weeping. It does describe a quiet crying. It was apparent to all who were there that he was crying, but Jesus wept quietly, which requires that we ask, why is he weeping? If we were taught this passage in Sunday school, we were probably taught that he's weeping for his friend Lazarus. He loved Lazarus, but now his friend is dead, and so he's weeping. That's what I was taught in Sunday school. But I think we will agree that's not an adequate explanation. Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus in a matter of minutes, and so it would be unlikely that these tears are for Lazarus. It's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Are his tears for Mary and Martha as he feels their sorrow and grief? That seems likely. The sight of Mary at his feet, crying in pain, feeling the loss, hurts Jesus' heart, and so he weeps. But there's likely more. As I said earlier, emotions are complex. And to suggest that his tears can be explained by one thing, that would be short-sighted. Let's bear in mind once again that just before we were told that Jesus wept, We're just told that he's angry. We're just told that he's troubled. He was angered by those dual enemies of death and sin. He's fearful for those who would face death without him, and I suggest that is why he weeps. These are tears of compassion for all who have lost a loved one. These are tears of rage against those enemies, sin and death. And as he weeps, these are tears of sorrow as he grieves for all those who will die without him. If we look now at verse 36, we will see that the crowd has two explanations of their own. They have two theories. If we look at 36, we will see that part of the crowd says this, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And so they're saying he's crying because he loved Lazarus. Well, they're not wrong. He did love Lazarus. In fact, we were told very specifically in verse 5 that Jesus loved the entire family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But if we are correct in our earlier assessment, he's not weeping for Lazarus. He's about to raise Lazarus. He's weeping. He's weeping for those who are about to see Jesus raise a dead man from the grave and yet will still not believe in him. How could he not be troubled in his heart? How could he not weep? 
He's about to raise a dead man from the grave, dead for four days, who's beginning to decay. He will have him rise from the grave, and yet the people still will not believe him. Of course, he weeps. But there's another segment of the group, and they have a different explanation as to why Jesus is weeping. Look, please, at verse 37. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? The first thing I would suggest we notice is the impersonal, the impersonal nature of their question. The impersonal nature of their question. They don't refer to Jesus by name. They don't even refer to Lazarus by name. Listen, they're at Lazarus's funeral, and they don't even refer to him by name. Look again. Could not this man, who opened the eyes of the blind, also have kept this man from dying? It's as almost as if they're calling um, Lazarus, what's his name, or who's it's, right? Couldn't he kept, kept this man from dying? Now, these visitors are supposed to be there to comfort the sisters, and they don't use Lazarus' name. They might not even know his name. It may cause us to wonder if some of these so-called mourners are not there to comfort the sisters, but have come with an ulterior motive. It may be that some of these people who know that there's a close relationship with Jesus and this family have come for no other reason than to discredit Jesus and to spread doubt. And so as they pose their rhetorical question, couldn't someone who supposedly healed a blind man cure this man of a simple fever? And the point of their so-called question is to suggest that Jesus has failed. They may be even suggesting, here's the reason he's crying, because he's a failure. He let down these sisters, he let down Lazarus. And we may wonder if these people, who have supposedly come to comfort Martha and Mary, planted these seeds of doubt in those sisters. After these sisters heard from these so-called mourners for four days, boy, if he could heal, I heard he could heal somebody from blindness. He couldn't help your, your brother? Do you think those seeds of doubt were planted in their minds and it may have caused the sisters to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, these two groups, they're attempting to explain why Jesus is weeping. The first group says he's weeping because he, he loved Lazarus. They don't even use his name. They just say they loved him. The second group is implying that he's weeping because he failed. But we know why Jesus wept, don't we? because of his great love for us. And it grieves him when he sees the results of sin and death. Jesus is weeping because he loves us, a love so great that he would give his life for us. And as we leave Jesus who's weeping with Martha and Mary, we are reminded of that messianic prophecy that was given by Isaiah. Who is Jesus? He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He not only knows pain personally, he knows our pain. He doesn't just know about our pain, he feels our pain. And that's why Jesus wept. 
and he weeps even now. And as he does, it is a reminder that whatever grieves us, whatever pains our soul, we can go to him knowing that Jesus weeps. The scene is now set for the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. And God willing, we will be made witness to this powerful miracle next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are so many who say that our God is absent or that you are indifferent, that God doesn't care. We see by your tears how deeply you do care and how deeply you love, and we love you for it. Amen.